The first question uh, that was uh, here in the stack is, how do you explain the Trinity to non-believers? Um, over the years, I've, I've attempted to explain the Trinity in a lot of different ways. Um, uh, I remember early on in my ministry, I used to uh, try to think of analogies. But over time, I found out that pretty much every analogy that I tried to use would break down somewhere. I remember thinking about the universe, because universe means turning into one denotatively. The universe is space, time, and matter, and each one of them is a trinity of sorts. And I came up with all kinds of elaborate diagrams and par- Fortunately, I never published any of them, because ultimately, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that every single illustration I could conceive of from the universe to the triple boiling point of water broke down at some point. And so I, I, I simply uh, bit the bullet and, and used this uh, turn of phrase, the difference between comprehension and apprehension. Why do I believe in the Trinity? Well, it's because I am not philosophically driven, I'm biblically driven. So I bow my knee before God's revelation of himself to me. If I'm a oneness Pentecostal, I'm essentially philosophically driven, although they won't admit it. Uh, what they're saying is, doesn't make any sense. Let me explain it in some philosophically palatable way. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm simply saying the Bible teaches that there's one God. The Bible teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God. And the third plank in the Trinitarian platform is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally distinct. Again, I can't comprehend that, but I apprehend that in Scripture. And it is not a contradiction. Uh, When we talk about God being one, we're talking about ontology, nature or essence. When we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're talking about person. And even that, and this is another, I think, insightful Notion that I've garnered over the years in talking about this, I realize that I'm kind of stuck right now in a linguistic hall of mirrors. Uh, a psycho-epistemological cocoon, if you will. Uh, because even the language that I'm using, I'm equivocating on. Right? When I say one God revealed in three persons, I'm not talking about the, uh, like three people here. I'm equivocating on the word person. So I have to define what I mean. Uh, I, I'm not talking about three persons. I'm talking about subject-object distinctions. I'm talking about identity formed and completed on the basis of relationships within the Godhead. So it, it takes some explaining. And I think this is, uh, again, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be cute by saying we're stuck in a linguistic hall of mirrors, but, uh, you know, oftentimes we can criticize the cults, but we're equivocating on words as well. We have to explain exactly what we mean and, and uh, at the end of the day say, you know what, uh, this is what the Bible teaches and the Bible's divine as opposed to merely human in origin. There's no way you can get around the fact that the Bible teaches that there's only one God. There's no way you can get around the fact that the Father is clearly communicated as God, the Son is clearly communicated as God, Holy Spirit is clearly, and there's no way that you can get around the fact that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally distinct. You see that in the Annunciation, you see that in Christ's baptism, you see that even in the Great Commission. So the Bible's clear on those points, and while I don't comprehend them, I apprehend them. 
and I bow my knee to God's revelation. So helpful just in some one what, three who's. One by nature, essence, one what, three who's, three in person. Uh, There are two questions that are similar. Uh, The first one says, uh, your discussion of evolution assumed a naturalistic worldview. But there is a growing segment within Christianity who believe God created by using a process of evolution. What would you say to those seeking to follow Christ who believe in evolutionary creation? The second question is similar. Is it possible to believe in the Bible and theistic evolution? Then what, is some, what are some general tactical advice when sharing with an evolutionist? How and when to move from science to spiritual matters, not getting bogged down with science, etc. Yeah, um, first of all, just FYI, I don't agree with the premise of the first question, but in general, asking the question about theistic evolution. Um, theistic evolution, in my view, is the worst of all possibilities. If you want to believe in evolution, fine, but don't blame God for it. Um, It is a contradiction in terms. Uh, It's like talking about flaming snowflakes. Um, It is supposing that God used evolution when there's no evidence for that in general revelation, and the Bible's clearly anti the notion in special revelation. So I think when the evolutionary paradigm is... Ready for collapse, like the Berlin Wall, we shouldn't try to artificially prop it up. Uh, the evolutionary paradigm is going to fall under its own weight. It's untenable. It's being pontificated. It isn't being. I mean, you have to. The icon has become the argument. Uh, the the it, you have, has any, uh, what was that movie uh, that came out uh, in, in theaters? Expelled. Expelled. It, it, if there's anyone in this room that hasn't seen that movie, you gotta go see it. You gotta get a copy of it and watch it. I made my children watch through it uh, three times, uh, and then discussions. I mean, it is a it is a brilliant movie, but it also shows. How the paradigm is being forced down people's throats and many professors teach it and hold to it, not because they believe in it, but because if they spoke out against it, they'd lose tenure. Um, well, in, in terms of getting bogged down, no, this is, this, is not, this is not a trivial side matter. This is, this is essential. This is not a apologetic issue. As I said in my talk, it is the apologetic issue. And, and, and so if you compromise the Bible in its first few pages, you've destroyed the foundation. The superstructure is bound to fall. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. This is historically critical in that Jesus Christ went so far as to build his doctrine of marriage on a real historical Adam and Eve. Now, there are a lot of areas where we could debate this issue vigorously. There are progressive creationists. There are young earth creationists. uh, There are variations of the two. Uh, 
these are worthwhile debates. These are, uh, I, I don't think you can compromise this fact. Uh, I, I personally, and uh, I'm sure this may come as a surprise to many, but I personally have come to uh, the view that we live in a, an old universe. Uh, I, I think this is uh, something that seems self-evident to me, although I'm open to any good arguments. Uh, seems self-evident to me. If I, if I look at something that's fairly observable, uh, like the night sky where there's not a lot of biological conjecture, uh, you look at cosmology and you can see a star in infancy, you can see a star in midlife, you can see a white dwarf, dwarf star that's burned out its nuclear fusion. Um, there, there's no way that you can harmonize that with a young universe. If you see sequential layers and ice cores in Antarctica, it's very difficult for me to square that with a 6,000-year-old universe. Um, it, it, thinking about the speed of light uh, and, and the dynamic, diameter of the universe, um, it's hard for me to square this with a young universe. But... I also will never compromise the fact that Adam's sin accounts for all moral evil in the universe. So I hold that Adam's sin is the cause of all evil in the universe. Now, uh, in in, in my view, uh, this is very similar to Christ being the atonement for all sin, which is to say that Christ's Atonement on the cross not only atones for Abraham's seed, I mean Abraham's sin, uh, and Abraham certainly preceded me, but it also atones for my sin. He was a land slain before the foundations of the world. So I would look at that chirologically as opposed to chronologically. I think we oftentimes see times are only going one direction. Uh, so I never would compromise the idea that Adam's sin accounts for all evil. Uh, I simply think that the, uh, the cause can precede the effect in chirological communication. Chirological communication being that God in the word of God is communicating the purposes of creation, not always a chronology of creation. So at any rate, I've thought about this for a long, long time. I've written about this in my new book, The Creation Answer Book. Uh, but, but, but this is one of those issues that we can have a collegial debate on. We don't have to divide on that issue. But I think when it comes to theistic evolution, you're uprooting uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And if you do that, you've uh, destroyed the superstructure of the historic Christian faith. What is one question we should ask of someone who says we shouldn't teach God's creation to our children? Well, I, I, uh, I think if there's one thing that we should teach to our children is that the Bible is true in its first few words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And not only so, but I think that uh, certainly not only from personal experience, but in terms of a great deal of discussion and interaction with people of all stripes worldwide on this subject, it is, as I said before, not a apologetic issue, the apologetic issue. And I think we have to communicate the biblical truth with respect to creation and also be able to demonstrate that more consequences for society hinge on the singular cosmogenic myth of evolution than on any other. So again, I don't think it's a peripheral or tangential issue. I think it's a central issue. 
Is the quote unquote second filling of the Holy Spirit a non essential? I.e., the Pentecostal view of the second filling? No, I, I, I do think that this is a, uh, a non essential. Here's, here's, here's the basic issue. There's such a thing as indwelling. Uh, when, when we become believers, we are indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our temple becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. So everyone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also speaks of infilling. And infilling is synonymous, in my view, with empowering for service. So, for example, before I come to speak before this group tonight, I pray, Lord, infill me with your spirit. Why? Because I'm a leaky vessel. And I don't pray it this time and say, I prayed it and it's over, I don't have to do it again. No, every single Day, I pray for God's infilling or empowering for service. In fact, you may notice that I frequently say, not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. Obviously a biblical phrase from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Um, the notion here is, I want to be infilled by his spirit so that what I do is not done with human strength, which always turns to gravel in your teeth, but with supernatural strength. I, 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 it's not about touching, I don't want to make a false dichotomy between head and heart, but it's for purposes of communication. It's not about just touching the intellect, it's, it's, it's changing a life. And I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So I pray to be infilled. So I don't think that there's a second blessing. I think there's a one thousandth blessing. I think there's a one millionth blessing. So the notion uh, that there is a second blessing and the evidence of that second blessing is speaking in tongues is something that I reject. But again, I reject it as a secondary issue, not an essential of the historic Christian faith. Again, just the qualification that's necessary is when I say secondary, I'm not, don't read into that unimportant. It is important. But it's yet a secondary issue that we can debate vigorously. It's not a deal breaker. It doesn't contradict the essentials of the historic Christian faith. What are your views on Christians who go on worldly TV reality contests and have to do ungodly things like dressing immodestly, singing certain songs, etc.? But use it as a witnessing tool for others, saying they are Christians, giving glory to God, etc. Should Christians use opportunities like this to share the gospel? Two things. One is, yes, we should use the secular media. Um, Christians and non-Christians drink from that trough. And, and therefore, there's no question in my mind that we should use the secular media. But we should do so in a sanctified sense. Uh, to dress immodestly, to take on the trappings of paganism so you get a chance to say you're a Christian doesn't do anything for the Christian faith. Uh, what, what, what's really critical here is that we do not become microcosms of the culture, rather that we become change agents in the culture. The problem with 
Western Christianity as pop culture beckons and postmodern Christians take the bait. You hear Christian pastors on secular television shows today, and it's an embarrassment. In fact, I, I stopped doing secular television many years ago. I used to do, you know, it's, you kind of, I was on the Rolodex. And so I would do the, the, the talk shows. I did, did that for years and years. And, and I finally uh, just decided with so many kids and wanting to write books and having a ministry and a radio show, I just couldn't do it all. So I stopped doing it. And I have decided I'm going to start doing it again. And the reason is, is because I'm embarrassed by the representation of Christianity that we see in secular venues. It's not Christianity. It's a, it's, it's, well, I don't want to say what it is. It's, it's a, it's long on technique. It's short on theology. It's, 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 it's a perversion of the, it's a baptized version of secular humanism is really what it is. And uh, it, it, you cannot, you, uh, for a woman to get on secular television and have to dress up, dress up in a way that is inappropriate is compromising her own integrity, uh, much less the integrity of, of, of everyone else watching and, and certainly the integrity of the Christian faith I and mean, we are told in scripture to do what we do with modesty and we should adhere to that and, and, and not compromise with the world and, uh, and it's so easy to do and this is what I was talking about earlier I mean it's so easy to do it and there's a million ways in which you can do it and I can be guilty of it too I mean it's, there's a million ways of, of just compromising a little here and a little there and you can justify it trying to reach the world uh, don't want to limit my platform it, it, it's, it's seductive it's it's easy to fall prey to, so I'm not saying it in a in a pompous or better than thou manner. It it, it is an insidious temptation. When Jesus returns, the Bible says that we will see him just as he rose into heaven. How can that happen with believers on the other side of the hemisphere? Well. Uh, this is an eschatological question that I would get in a lot of trouble answering. But uh, if people want to know what my eschatological views in this regard are, um, they probably want to read my book, The Apocalypse Code. But the, 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 the issue here is that Jesus Christ is going to appear. The context of that is that the veil is going to be removed. There are many pictures of this in the Old Testament. Remember Elisha? The veil was parted for just a bit, and he saw that he was not alone. He saw the chariots of God. These are pictures of the fact that we live in a universe with more dimensions than we're often aware of. And what happens when Christ returns is what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer takes place on, in heaven as it is on earth. Right? We pray that. Thy kingdom come on earth, uh, in, on earth as it is in heaven. Well, 
When Jesus appears a second time, heaven and earth will be enjoined. They no longer will be separate spheres. This is the notion, I think, that John is communicating in Revelation chapter 21 when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I saw the new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down into heaven from God, dressed as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. God himself will be with them and be their God. They will be his people. No more death, mourning, crying, or pain. The notion is not that we're going to go up there somewhere. Nor is the notion that we're going to be disembodied. Christianity is not platonic. It's very physical. If we would have been in the tomb when Christ rose from the dead, we would have seen dust fly off the very slab on which he lay. So we believe in a physical resurrection. We believe in a physical reconstitution of this universe. And if we could exhaust exploring this universe, God could create new universes for us to explore. Uh, but, 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 but the basic idea inculcated in Christ appearing a second time is, is something that I touched on earlier. I mean, it, you know, a lot of skeptics, and the reason I had to think about these things is skeptics constantly mock the Christian faith, and I usually become the brunt of that because I'm being asked a question in a public forum. So they say, yeah, well, it's Jesus ascended into heaven. Okay, if he's traveling at the speed of light, remember what I said earlier? I mean, he wouldn't be out of our little galaxy yet. And there are a hundred billion galaxies with a hundred billion stars. And surely he must be suffering from oxygen deprivation by now. So if we don't contextualize this properly as the God-man, he transcends time and space. That's what's being communicated. Or the inverse of that, in line with the question, we end up with absurdities that are very hard to communicate. So this is not a compromise. It's simply communicating in the best possible way what the text is seeking to communicate to us. How do you turn an antagonistic conversation about Christianity into a more helpful one? Well, I... I think with gentleness and with respect, you know, what, what, what I do on the Bible Answer Man broadcast is not just give information, but seek to, to the best of my ability. And some days I'm, I'm better at it than, than others. You know, some days you're more irritated than others. I mean, you, you're not always the same. Uh, sometimes you're tired and you get a little cranky. Uh, but, but I seek not only to give information, but model the way that information is communicated. So the greatest joy I have is not, wow, that was a really brilliant answer. The greatest joy is, wow, I love your patience with people. Uh, and I have sought, uh, as host of the Bible Answer Man broadcast, and by the way, I'm not the Bible Answer Man, I'm host of the Bible Answer Man broadcast. Uh, I took over a radio program called the Bible Answer Man broadcast, and I'm the host. <laughs> That's all. I'm learning with everybody else. I don't have all the answers. But the, um, the, 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 the one thing I determined to do is not try to just be quick with people or, you know, they say good radio, you know, you got to... No, that's not my purpose. I want to model how to communicate. I want to give good answers, but again, model patience. And I think that's really the answer to that question. 
How do you reconcile predestination and free will? Well, fortunately it's 830. 825. Well, you know, Calvinists and non-Calvinists all believe in, uh, you know, some, they all believe in freedom. Some believe in circumstantial freedom or compatibilistic freedom. Other, others believe in libertarian freedom. I, I was talking to a pastor uh, at dinner about my friendship with R.C. Sproul. We have been friends uh, since the early 80s. And uh, we spent a lot of time playing golf and talking theology at the same time. And uh, this is one of those subjects we just don't talk about anymore. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, let me... Because of, not to obfuscate and not to avoid the question, uh, perhaps is a better time to talk about it. The reason I say that only is I have very few, few moments to cash out a very difficult subject. And I feel if I do it in a cavalier or trite fashion, I'm not doing anybody any service and probably causing more harm than good. Uh, I personally, uh, just in terms of my background, I grew up in a Christian Reformed church. Or, I was born in Holland, so I'm Dutch. Dutch is my my first language, um, and um, so I, I grew up in what was called the Reformeerdekerk, or the Reformed Church. And so, I I was reared in a Calvinist um, uh, home. And uh, even when I committed my life to Christ as Lord and Savior when I was uh, 29 years of age, it was in a Presbyterian church, a BCA church. Uh, So that's kind of my heritage and my background. But I am not uh, wed to any theological uh, construct. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I hold not to traditions. I hold not to theological constructs. Um, I, I want to test all things in light of scripture and hold fast to that which is good this is one of those subjects again it's a secondary issue that you can debate vigorously uh, and, and not divide over I personally do not hold to compatibilistic freedom or circumstantial freedom I can say that in short uh, but I admire many people that do and I hold them to be my dear friends and uh, many of them I can learn a lot from so we might have a question or, or time for a question if somebody wants to ask. And if you could uh, say your name. And... My name is Chip Lambert, and thanks for coming, Hank. This is just wonderful to have you here. Uh, my question is about a book that was written uh, recently uh, called Heaven is for Real, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, the story is about a, a young boy, Colton Burpo, uh, pastor's son, who had, I believe it was a near-death experience. And uh, many of the things in the book sound legitimate, scriptural. But uh, near the end of the book, there is uh, a description of a picture of Jesus that uh, uh, another girl had drawn. She had a a vision. And I'm trying to reconcile that with the second commandment. And is that compatible? Is it not? And what is your uh, opinion of the book? Well, Colton Burpo was able to identify uh, Jesus Christ uh, because he saw Jesus Christ. He was with Jesus Christ, saw the picture, said, yep, that's the right picture. Um, the, the book is really quite an abomination. 
uh, it, it, I won't mince any words about it. I mean, uh, not only uh, does, and this is no reflection on a three-year-old who had three minutes in heaven, um, but this is a reflection on a book uh, that was uh, written by his father, Todd Burpo which suggests that Colton Burpo, as a three-year-old, now can reconcile issues that the body of Christ has struggled, without, uh, struggled with throughout its 2,000-year history, because he was there, he saw it, and he now has the answer. The book actually says that. Uh, not only that, but you have a Jesus who has... I, I, uh, I don't remember all the details off the top of my head. Uh, I have written about this in, in, in the book that will be coming out in, in, in the spring uh, called Afterlife. Uh, so I wrote about near-death experiences and the phenomenon in general, uh, but, 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 but this I used as an example. Um, he saw Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has a particular color hair. He has a pony. Uh, God, the Father, has... I think he's got blue eyes and... Jesus has sea green eyes and they have different color hair. Uh, God the Father has big wings. Jesus Christ does not have wings. He just goes up and down like an elevator. Uh, the Holy Spirit is bluish and hard to see. Uh, this, is, this is simply extra biblical revelation. Does that, it doesn't square. Uh, with what scripture tells us about death and the afterlife. And the problem is there's a great deal of confusion in the minds of Christians in terms of what happens when we die. Uh, I have been to funerals and heard pastors say the most outlandish things uh, about what happens. I, I was at a funeral of a major Christian leader. The casket was sitting here. He was behind the podium, talking about his brother, who now has a new body. The body was there. So does his brother have another body? The confusion here is about what happens after we die. And the Bible's clear, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So when a woman gives birth... She gives birth to a body-soul unity. That's what it means to be human. It's not as though the soul comes to the body at a particular time. A woman gives birth to a body-soul unity. At death, there's an unnatural rending between body and soul. The body is buried. The soul goes to be with the Lord. And even that needs some explaining. Because souls are non-corporeal, non-physical, and therefore they don't have extension in space. They don't have, if you were if you will, awareness. They do have awareness, but they don't have awareness. They don't have extension in space. So to say absent from the body present with the Lord is not a locational statement. It is a relational statement. So my dad died in 1997. His body was buried. He is now with the Lord. Now that's the temporary heaven. He doesn't have a new body. He's absent from the body, present with the Lord. And he is awaiting the greatest of all eventualities, an eternal heaven. When Jesus appears a second time, his soul will return to his body. That body will rise immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. So at this point, if you go to heaven like Colton did, you're not going to find people with their resurrected bodies. 
You're not going to find God with yellow hair and bluish or sea green eyes or whatever color. He had God in great big wings. And Jesus without wings. This is extra biblical revelation that does not square with scripture. And the notion that we can get extra revelation in our epoch of time is, is, is simply a dangerous, a dangerous idea. Uh, we hold to the canon as the infallible repository of redemptive revelation by which we test all things and hold fast to the good. We don't have modern prophets and apostles. Uh, we have to test those today by what the canon says. They were eyewitnesses or close associate of eyewitnesses to those who saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we accept their testimony because their testimonies were authenticated, not the least of which was by miracles. Um, so in the present we cannot accept new revelations and in uh, my new book I, uh, I give all the details which escape me now but there are some very uh, troubling things in that book now again in saying that I can't judge their motives um, I can't judge their sincerity they may really believe this ha- I, that's beyond me uh, but I can test what they say in light of Scripture and hold fast to that which is good, and we should as well. That book is not acceptable for Christian reading. And the problem now is it was such a great success, sold millions of copies, 44 weeks at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, that now every Christian publisher, uh, my publishers included, uh, my, my primary publisher actually wouldn't be very pleased with me saying this because they published most of my books. Uh, and, and, and now I just published a nonfiction, historical fiction book with Tyndall House, and they published a new book. And, uh, you know, everybody's got a near-death experience, and uh, everybody's capitalizing on the fame and fortune that that particular book. Uh, it's unfortunate that that's what happens in the Christian world. Thank you, Hank. Let's uh, give him a, a thank you. And, uh...